Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we move forward in Peter's letter to the believers in dispersion, scattered abroad, scattered out there. Uh, And we're starting to feel more and more like that, I think, among that number of pilgrims. Uh, We are just traveling this world, it seems, more and more, that this is not our home, that we're just really passing through here. This morning we begin a series of studies, and it is extensive, because from verse 3, we are dealing with a single sentence that takes us all the way to verse 14 in the original Greek. It has been broken up into several sentences for you in English because we don't believe in run-on sentences, but the Greeks had a very different philosophy of that. Uh, They did not break up sentences. Uh, Our idea of a paragraph is more of their idea of a sentence, and so they want to complete the thought before they move on. And we think of that as being in a paragraph form, that that is uh, to develop and complete an idea or theme. Uh, And uh, so we break it up, and every English teacher is going to want you to be more concise and to not have run-on sentences. And that really just isn't good Greek. And the Greek have some uh, tools available to them that we don't have as readily available in the English language to accomplish that. And so we can follow the verbiage through this sentence and know what it's relating to without the use of pronouns or repeating the subject matter um, because of the tenses of verbs and, and the gender of verbs and things along that line. And so we can, we can attach these participial phrases back to what is this all really about? And so we have it actually broken out here in probably a couple of paragraphs uh, certainly two, if not three paragraphs, if you want to go all the way to verse 12. And so when we look through this, we are going to be exploring a single theme, essentially. And but it's going to take many weeks to get that accomplished. And so we're going to keep referencing back to that. You say, well, is that one of the major themes of Peter? No. It's just one sentence. (laughs) It's going to take me a while to get through that sentence. And it's going to incorporate many of the themes The three themes that we're going to be focusing on, obedience, uh, rejoicing and suffering, and the godly relationships. And we're going to talk about each of those, and we're going to see them in the midst of some of this, particularly our second theme. Uh, But it's also going to reference the concept of obedience here, that we persist in that as we rejoice in suffering. Uh, But it's all going to be related to an underlying uh, truth or principle about God that's going to encourage us. And so this is really an extension of his greeting that we saw last Lord's Day in grace to you and peace be multiplied here in uh, the end of verse 2. And so let's break this down a little bit and understand what's going to be the underlying principle of what we're going to be studying for several weeks. It says, blessed be, verse 3 of 1 Peter 1 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though you now do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what manner, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have been preached, who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. That's the sentence. Now, 
Some of it has been addressed by the translators who have broken this up into several sentences. You'll still notice several long sentences in here before you get to a period. So they've tried to demonstrate that this is really a continuous thought. And we have it here before us that it is tied again to the very beginning. And the very beginning is, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. And the underlying principle and truth that all of this and really the rest of the book is going to be established on as we have looked at the terms in the first uh, couple of verses, uh, recognizing the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, that we are uh, followers and travelers with them, with Him, God Almighty, triune God, that now we are going to add to grace and peace the concept of mercy. And it is the mercy of God that Peter wants to delve into in terms of its application to the Christian life and our standing. And really talking about the initiation as well as the continuation. We're not going to spend a lot of time in 1 Peter talking about the initiation of our, of our walk with God. But it is related here at the very beginning. How is it that we came to Christ and what is it that happens to us when we come to Christ? He's going to be referencing it here and again, uh, but in terms of developing it, we have this wonderful, very concise and brief statement on it. And I know you say that long sentence is concise and brief. Essentially, yes, um, because it's only the front end of it that really focuses in on the acceptance of Christ and what happens when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. What is it that God foreknew? And for planned, what is it that that the Spirit has set us apart toward? What is it that the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ has accomplished for us? And we have this uh, really brought together in a term that you're very familiar with, but yet uh, probably you missed, or at least didn't log it um, and and correlate it to some other passages. But we're going to do that this morning because that's my job is to help you do that. And that term is that you are born again. And of course, that go, immediately when I use that term, you think of John chapter 3 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' response is, what, do I crawl into my mother's womb and get born over again? How, as I'm an old man, can that be done? And Jesus Christ goes, oh my, Whoa. I thought I was dealing with a spiritual person here, a religious person. You're, you're a, a leader of Israel, and you don't know the difference between spiritual and physical, and Jesus Christ has to explain that to him. The verbiage here is very strongly related to that same concept. It's a little bit different Greek words, but with the same essential meaning, and that is that he has begotten us Again, do you see that phrase? Begotten us again. Again means re. Begotten means born. <laughs> you have to be born again. You have to be reborn. And this is the, the evidence of the mercy of God towards us that when we were deserving of death, he gave us a birth. That when we are deserving of misery and injury, he is going to give us new life. This is the accomplishment of the mercy of God towards us to not give us what we do deserve and to rather grant us this wonder of being begotten again. And of course, we're not begotten again just to live for ourselves. That's going to be described in the balance of this and we're going to be examining these things and it's going to be hopefully a very encouraging time the next few weeks as we talk about what is it exactly that Christ has purchased for us what does it mean to be born again and to have all these things let's look at the very positive and encouraging things that we have here we have that we are born again now the next phrase right there to a living hope and so we have that concept of a living hope. We're going to talk about that this morning uh, yet. And then an inheritance in verse 4, reserved for us at the end of verse 4. We are kept by the power of God in verse 5. And, and we see that um, that's going to be kept until the last days, also in verse 5, the last time. 
and that with an expectation that we'll have joy inexpressible and full of glory, that we are enjoying the teaching of God's word, that even the angels aspire to understand. And that's a phenomenal statement when, according to Hebrew tradition, the angels are the ones that brought the revelation of the law to Moses. That was also often attributed to angels. And you even see that in the book of Hebrews, where it says that it was attributed to these things were attributed to angels. But Peter says this is well beyond that. Even angels desire to look into these wondrous things that have been declared to you through the prophets and now have been made available to you by the Holy Spirit. This is the experience that we enjoy. This is the position that we have in Christ, and it is a blessed condition. And rather than saying, well, we have it for ourselves, we recognize we have this for God. And so our verse begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be him because of his mercy. We are called to bless the name of the Lord in our lives because of his mercy towards us. Because of all that he has done for us, it is such a small thing to respond to him with blessing. And in fact, we find this consistently through God's word. Uh, and we're going to be developing some of that uh, in Romans and Corinthians and other places. Uh, but we want to really talk about taking time to recognize that the energy and the foundation of a thankful heart is understanding the abundant mercy of God toward us. And so when we talk about blessing the Lord, it is about being thankful. It is about praising his name for what he has done for us. This is what it entails in blessing the Lord. Let's look a little bit at some of this in the book of Psalms. Let's go to Psalm Turn, if you will, Psalm 136. Psalm 136. I'm not going to read the entirety of the psalm. Uh, we probably could very easily. I'm going to read a portion of it. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and you're going to read it with me, because I'm only going to read the first half of each verse, and you're going to read the last phrase of each verse. This is called responsive reading. I would love to switch it around so that I could read the fun part. But I'm not sure what translations all of you have, so we're just going to do this. And this is the tragedy of churches with multiple translations. They can't do responsive reading and, and corporate reading very easily. Psalm 136, I'll bring out the New King James Version. And I'm going to begin each verse, and I invite you to end each verse with the last phrase. Uh, God's word declares, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone, to him, to him who alone does great wonders. To him who by wisdom made the heavens. To him who laid out the earth above the waters. To him who made great lights. The sun to rule by day. The moon and stars to rule by night. And it continues. It continues by going through the history of the Exodus. Uh, and one phrase after another, after another, after another, and then uh, also talking about the inheritance of, of the promised land uh, and the heritage, and that word is inheritance, which is one of the words we're going to be studying in, in, in weeks to come. Uh, the inheritance of Israel, uh, which is in verse 21, 22. Let's pick up in verse 23 and finish this chapter out. It says, Who remembered us in our lowly estate, and rescued us from our enemies. Who gives food to all flesh. Who give thanks to the God of heaven. Now that might seem like a very repetitive activity. Uh, especially since you didn't get to read the intermittent parts. 
You just got to read that for his mercy endures forever. The element that this psalm is trying to bring out is that if we break down the activity of God into their components, each component of the activity of God is a representation of his mercy. That when we look at the larger thing, we can say, well, I, I'm thanking God for salvation. And, and you would be correct to do it. What a merciful thing. God saved me. He made me new. Uh, but the psalmist here in Psalm 136 wants to break things down into even finer elements. Let's talk about each aspect, each little facet of your salvation. And let's just break this way down. Uh, that he convicted me of sin. What's your response? Oh, you guys are great. That should be your response. God convicted me of my sin. He made me feel like the worst of sinners one day. Oh, his mercy endures forever. Oh, he brought into my life someone that communicated to me God's word. That should be your response. And you might have in your mind who that is. It could be uh, a pastor, it could be a, a science school teacher, a word of life coach, it could be uh, your parent, a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be uh, a stranger on the street. But you can break out that component and say, this is God's mercy. And, it was the, and we could go right through every facet of what is required for you to come from being a sinner to a saint, and that and that position of sainthood needs a response too. For his mercy endures forever. That he has made me a holy one. Set apart, as we talked about several weeks ago. And so as we look at this concept of the abundance of God's mercy, um, it is easy for us to use categorical terms and miss the fact of why am I so unthankful? Because you have put this umbrella over an enormous number of components of God's design for your salvation and just said, well, he's a merciful God because he saved me. And you have diminished largely the expansiveness of what he has done for you. And Peter is going to take us not really into how we got saved, but what we have been saved to. That is, what has God really given you? And we're going to talk about a living hope. We're going to talk about inheritance. We're going to talk about being kept by his power. We're going to be talking about endurance, endurance of suffering. We're going to be talking about rejoicing. We're going to be looking at the extent of our salvation, what it is that we have in our future that is sure. And we, as we break these things down, each of these components that we refer to as participial phrase, that he did this, he did this, he did this. All these descriptive phrases in this one very long sentence in the Greek are all components that we want to go back and say, his mercy endures forever. His abundant mercy is the term that Peter uses. Oh, that we'd focus on his abundant mercy, that according to his abundant mercy, he has done this. He has begotten us. Again, we have a living hope. We have all these things we're going to break out. And our response is that we are studying essentially the abundance of God's mercy towards us. Because the fact is, is that we are deserving of judgment. And every time God withholds judgment, even not only towards us who are the saints, but even towards the world, to give them more time, to feed them, to give them housing, clothing, shelter, those kind of things, is his mercy. You saw that in the Psalms, that he gives food to all creatures. That's his mercy endures forever. The sun doesn't only shine on Christians. His mercy endures forever. He gave the sun and the moon, the land. All of these things are calling, and this is reflective of what we think of as God saying that through all creation you can see me at work. You can see my divine attributes. You should be able to understand there is a God, and every culture has. Every culture on the earth has a system of belief in some deity. Period. Now, have we moved to humanism, where humans now and, and atheists and agnostics and things? Certainly. But that is, a, that is not reference to their historical roots at all. Now, does that mean they had the one true and living God? No, but they understood there's a deity behind all of this. That's a universal uh, fact of every culture. 
And so uh, we are trying to replace that with science today, which is, requires more faith than, than uh, believing the scriptures. Uh, but uh, we still have a God. We, have to, we, we all acknowledge there's something behind everything. And here we find that it is the one true and living God who created all and is making us new, has begotten us again according to his abundant mercy. And so this is the root now. His mercy is the foundation. The primary action is we are born again, and now we're going to develop that. This is the preciousness of what God has done for us. He has taken us who are deserving of judgment, deserving of his, his uh, harshness, his anger, his wrath, uh, and has reborn us. Go to Romans chapter 8. This is uh, the same concept that we see there. Let's pick up Romans chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, things of the Spirit. For to be carly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That was our condition. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But the Spirit of him who raises from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And so this was our condition that we could not please God. We were incapable of because we were in the flesh. And so God comes upon that scene and he says, I, I, I have set the rails. I have put out the course of how you can be born again. That you can now put off this body of death, Paul goes on to say, uh, and put on life. And again, what does it derive from? His mercy is the intent from the Father. And that is, a, that is aligned with in Peter with his foreknowledge, that his mercy uh, is abundant towards us. But the mechanism for it, remember, is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ prior. Now it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's borne out here in chapter 8, verse 11 as well. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is going to accomplish this, that we, are, that we are given a new life that will not experience death. And certainly that isn't a new physicality. It is a spiritual life, and that's what Paul tries to bring out here. That which is of the flesh is flesh, that which is of the spirit is spirit, he talks about in Corinthians. And so we find that we have the spiritual vitality, a new life. And the term begotten again, uh, and by the way, uh, I know Paul uses the word creation, new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. Let's begin verse 12. I'm just looking at where I want to begin. But I'd like to back up even farther. Let's go to verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now let's jump to verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but... Uh, give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who should live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's the resurrection. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For me, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we are going to see this tent destroyed. We're going to see this body 
succumb to the damaging effects of sin. But we have an eternal tent. No, eternal house, sorry, not a tent. A tent's temporary, the building from God, a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. And this is going to be foundational to what Peter wants to communicate about our inheritance. That when we talk about death for a Christian, we're talking about simply putting off a temporary thing so that we could get to a permanent thing. Now, as many of you know, we have been trying very hard to build a permanent place at our property in the mountains. And we have been progressively getting more permanent up there. We started out in tents. And our family went up there in tents. And when we first purchased this property and we had lots of ideas and we were out there in tents, and it was just rough camping. There was nothing there and we just had one little spot to fit our tent, and that was about it. And that's how it began. And then we built a little cabin that's still there. We still use it. Uh, used it yesterday. And so we have a little cabin, a little more permanent. But we knew it really wasn't permanent. It wasn't our intention for that to be the extent of what it was. But we were so excited to get out of a tent and to have a little more shelter now. Uh, it was exciting. And now we're getting a little more excited about getting into something even more permanent than that uh, because, so that we could have you know, a place to cook and, and shower, things like that, that we don't have right now with our little itty-bitty cabin. And so we understand the value of moving from a tent to a permanent structure. And this is entailed in this concept that we are being begotten again. And so we are a new people we have a new expectation, a new aspiration. This is all the abundant mercy of God. And every facet that brings that to reality in our life is to God's glory. We bless the Father. And as Psalm 136 says, we are thankful. This is how we express our thanks to God, is by reminding one another of the extent of his mercy. And oh, that we would be more specific in our thanksgiving that we would be inclusive of these things. And you read these passages in Romans, Corinthians, Peter, uh, and John, other places, and you see the extent to which they want to glorify God because they recognize the expansiveness of what he has done for us. We are born again. We are begotten again. We are new in Christ. This should have these words on our lips constantly Thanks be to God. His mercy just keeps going on. It just keeps going and going and going. You go back to Psalm 136, and the word endure really isn't in the Hebrew at all. It's just his mercy forever. We've added the word endures uh, to communicate the concept, but it's his mercy forever. Forever, forever. And that's not only his mercy being extended towards us, his mercy continues forever. And that's going to be an important underlying element to what Peter has to say about our new birth. So we are begotten. Now, begotten is a little bit different. This is, I got tangented there uh, into Romans and Corinthians. Uh, it, then Peter's, Peter's using a different word than what Paul uses. Paul uses the word a new cre creature, new creation. Peter uses the word begotten. And when I ask people about this word, we are really unfamiliar with it. And so I ask uh, people, did God create you? And people say, oh, I'm created in his image. I'm like, well, no, you weren't. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear God did not create you. Your parents created you, and you were in your father's image. And that is from the first generation, from Adam, uh, it says that his children were in his image. Go check it out, early on in Genesis, uh, that his children were in the image of Adam. Adam and Eve were the only people created by God in his image. Everyone else was begotten of man in the Father's image. So Peter is using here a very specific term that is distinct from Paul's term about being a new creation. And certainly there is both elements involved, but I want you to see this 
link that Peter's trying to stress by using the word begotten instead of created. And this goes back to blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who begot us. You see, in John 3, we understand uh, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And at that point, it was his only begotten son. But now, because of the power of the resurrection, we are able to be begotten of God as well. And that's why in heaven, our, our, our status in terms of our inheritance, we're going to be studying probably next week, uh, is equal with Christ. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That means that we are equal as begotten of God. This is a miraculous working of God. But it focuses in on the relationship between a father and his child. That that intimacy, that you are begotten in my image. Now, no longer do I look at a man and my physicality, I'm looking at a God and my spiritual life. That because God is eternal, my life is now everlasting. Because God is holy, 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 my, my future, my life is going to be about holiness. Because of who my Father is, and I am now in his image. And so you have not just once been, you are, you are in the image of God only in the sense of your physicality as you inherited it after many, many generations from Adam who was created in the image of God and did pass on elements of that uh, to his children. And we see that all the way down. But also he passed on the sin that he committed to his children. And so in Adam, all have sinned. That's in Romans 5. There we go. And in, in Christ, all made alive. And so we have this inherited sin but then we have the inherited image bearing as well. Now we go a step further. Now we are begotten of God and we have the imageness, the image of God put into us on another level, on a spiritual level that is, <laughs> just has to make you say, his mercy is forever. It just, there's no end to his mercy. He didn't just make me the minimum to get into heaven. He made me his begotten child. And now I look forward to putting off this tent and getting into my permanent place in his presence where I will be fully in his image. I will be like his son Jesus Christ. Not in the Mormon sense that I'll become a god, nothing like that. For I will always be in heaven, seeing that statement over and over again, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, his mercy is forever. It has no end. In time and in extent, it has no end. His mercy forever. Because I've begotten, he is my father. And so I can go to my father and say, Abba, Father. I can go to him on intimate terms because he's begotten us again. I've been begotten by an earthly father, but I've been begotten by a heavenly father. And that's why we are told in scripture, don't call men on earth your father because you've been reborn. Who is the one that's to be called your father? Is God. And of course, it should concern us when we have Groups of clergy inviting people or expecting people to call them father in direct contradiction to that passage and the idea that I didn't beget any of you, even if I baptized you at any point in your life. I didn't begot you. You're not in my image. You're in the image of God. He is your father. Call no man father. Even my earthly father, um, I didn't really call him father. I called him Dad. My children call me dad. I'm only the father of their flesh and of their sin nature. That's what I'm the father of. I don't really want to remind of that. I don't even know what dad means. But, um, of course, they also call me my, their dearest progenitor sometimes. So occasionally I get that. Uh, but God is our father. 
He has begotten us again. But notice what he's begotten us to, a living hope. Begotten means introducing life, a new life, a living hope. This is a life that has no end. This is true life. You see, when I give birth, when, when a couple gives birth to a child, and they have all these aspirations, but we recognize that at any time from that point forward, that child's life can expire. There are, there are a million ways for that to happen. And while we have lots of expectation and we have lots of hopes and dreams of spending uh, many, many years, even decades with that child, we recognize that sometimes children die in very early infancy. My parents' first child died as a very young infant. It happens. We recognize that. Uh, And we see that death is there at any turn, whether by accident, by injury, by disease, that it is there. That really when we produce that life, we recognize the temporariness of it to the degree that we say there's two things you can't avoid, death and taxes, right? We make those statements that, that when we give life, we anticipate death. We say that's natural. God says that's not natural, that's sin. That's unnatural. I didn't create things to die. There's another reason God didn't create you, because then you'd have to be perfect, because God doesn't create imperfection. So, we're begotten of our Father into death. It's just a matter of time. And that time is very brief. We get excited if someone gets to be 90, 100 years old. Wow. That's not even a full day in Jesus' and God's chronology. Right? He says a thousand years is a day. Not even a tenth of a day. And we think that's extensive. But the fact is we recognize that at birth there will be death. Unless the Lord comes back. But this begetting is to a living hope. When God begets us, there is no expectation of death at all. Zero. This is going to be borne out a little bit when we get into the millennial kingdom. And it says that anyone that dies at 100 years old will be lamented that they died as a child. Because people's lives will be extended to that length of time. That, that a centurion, uh, a century-old person uh, that dies, God must have judged them to kill them that young. And so lifespans are going to be extended. We saw those lifespans extended before the flood in that period of time where men lived hundreds of years. Uh, but the expectation in the millennial kingdom is that there's not going to be uh, really a lot of death going on. And yet that isn't even our living hope. Our living hope is far beyond that. It's not just that we will live for a few hundred years, that we'll have extended life in these new bodies. There will be no death in that new body. That we are begotten again to a living hope that never disappoints. And we use that word hope in the English language, I hope so, as if it's something that maybe or may not happen, and it's wishful thinking. And we have replaced the real meaning of hope with just wishful thinking. I hope so. But no, in the, in the Greek, the Hebrew word there is a, a sure confidence. We have a sureness, a sure confidence that we have life. We have a living hope. An expectation we are confidently striding towards. And without that, we cannot endure what stands between us and that day when that is fully uh, attained. Certainly not the way Peter's going to describe it later on in this sentence as rejoicing in tribulation. But because we have a living hope, this is what we have begotten again to. 
that there will be no death. And the evidence of that, the strength of that, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As we saw in Romans, we see now again in 1 Peter, that because Christ conquered death, we as begotten of God, begotten certainly by the blood of Jesus Christ, being shed to take away our sin, that's the focus of Paul, is to get rid of the old man. The focus of Peter is where we are in the new man. And so his focus here is going to be on the resurrection instead of the death. Did Paul leave out the resurrection? No, he is inclusive of that. Did Peter leave out the death? No, he already talked about the blood of Jesus Christ. But his focus is on the resurrection. The resurrection is that living hope because Jesus Christ conquered death. He covered sin on the cross, but he conquered death in the resurrection. And this is our living hope, that there is a resurrection. Now we are also told God's word that the resurrection is both of the evil and of the righteous. So those that are lost and those that are saved, both will participate in the resurrection. One's the first resurrection, resurrection to life. The other one's a resurrection to condemnation or eternal death. So our living hope isn't just for a resurrection because all men have that. His mercy endures forever. All men have an eternal aspect of them, an everlasting part of them. Some will be raised to life. That's our living hope. Not just in being raised again because the lost will be raised again, the heathen will be raised again, but to condemnation, a continuous dying, a living death in the lake of fire that Jesus Christ describes where the worm doesn't die and the flame is never extinguished. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one that conquers death and we have a living hope that we will be, because we are begotten of God, because he has conquered death, we will be in his presence forevermore. His mercy goes on and on and on. His mercy forever. His mercy forever. His mercy forever. This is our salvation that we are begotten of God, that we are looking forward to this without any expectation of death, no fear of death. Think of how much the fear of death has gripped people today. Think of it. A couple hundred years ago, the fear of death was frequently conquered to such a degree that we put it on flags, that there were many things more valuable to us than our death. I want you to consider the underlying conscience of man who says, give me liberty or give me death, of what his view of death entails. That he values his personal liberty higher than this tent. You have to understand the mentality underneath that man to, and that society that puts that on a flag, that makes that their watchword, liberty or death. And now when you examine that understanding, that's a living hope. They had a living hope. They understood that death wasn't the end. That liberty is so precious that it is more precious than life itself. Because it was a gift of God. In fact, I would contend it is the gift of God. It is what it means to be image bearers of God. Is that liberty. And shame on anyone that wants to take that liberty away. You serve and worship as your conscience dictates. And we have that as the law of our land. But it is more importantly the gift of God because his mercy is forever. It goes on and on. God mercifully has given us liberty the freedom to choose. Whether for or against him, you have the freedom. It is God given to you. His mercy is forever. These men, this society, hundreds of years ago, had that as their foundation of their life. When you have a living hope as the foundation of your understanding of reality, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ firmly in place, and that are begotten of God, now we can 
overcome the fear of death because it doesn't grip us. And we can say things like Paul said, well, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Where does that come from? A living hope. See, a living hope overcomes a fear of death. What are we seeing now? People do not have that underlying understanding of the resurrection. They do not have the understanding of the begottenness of, of, of God as their father. They do not have a value system whereby they understand the brevity of life. And so now, in fear of death, they have surrendered everything. Christians are surrendering worship. They're surrendering everything, every liberty that has been quote-unquote fought for over these generations has been fully surrendered because of a fear of death. We have no fear of death. We have a living confidence that if I put off this tent, I will put on something immortal. And in, in Corinthians, he goes on for multiple chapters talking about that. Of putting off this tent and putting on, putting on this mortal and putting on immortality. This is our living hope. It conquers the fear of death. And now my value system, death is no longer, well, keeping my physical body alive is the highest value. No, it is not. There's an extraordinary number of things that are of more value than keeping physical life going. Our forefathers in this country identified one, that is liberty. Well, that's more valuable to me than my physical life. The safety of my family is more important to me than my physical life. This is why people give their lives for kin and country because that's more valuable. You see, historically, there have been a host of things that are more valuable than our life, but it has to be founded on an understanding that this life is already so temporary it can't be trusted in and anything can extinguish it at any time. And that there's something more. And it, what we have more is a living hope that has been born in us, begotten in us by our Father in heaven. And if it's a Father in heaven that's begotten it, it is perfect. We have a perfect living hope. His mercy is forever. Goes on and on and on, doesn't it? So I have no fear of death. And now I can function, and this is going to be critically important later on. I'm going to keep referencing this, that we have no fear of death. That's why we are going to endure testing by fire. We're going to endure the heinous treatment by men. We're going to endure all these things and recognize that we have a living hope. Remember, this is all one sentence. We're, and, the, and the core of this is that you've been Begotten again to a living hope because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So we have no fear of death. And historically for the church, this has been its strength is that we'll go into ridiculous environments, sacrifice lives, not take up arms against people, but simply share with them the gospel. Though they want to burn us at the stake, though they want to behead you, though they want to tear you limb from limb, though they want to uh, uh, assault you in, in every form possible. They want to rip apart your family, take away all your goods. We keep giving them the gospel because there's things more important than our lives. And it's their eternities. Because our eternity is settled. And phenomenally, wherever Christians have gone and spilt righteous blood in an attempt to share the gospel with, with people that are enemies of God, that bloodshed has never come back empty. Growing up as a teen, I was impacted with that over and over again in my youth group. We put on these plays 
and we traveled all around, and we had one of those here we put on uh, for this cause. But uh, one of the, the plays was called Bridge of Blood, the story of Nate Saint and Roger Darian and, and Jim Elliott and two other guys. Went down to Ecuador to reach a lost people group. They all died on a beach in one horrific scene to reach the Alca Indians along the Amazon. Tragedy. All of these young, sharp, godly men gone in one event. But if you've read the accounts of Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, you'll know that the Alca Indians as an entire tribe came to know Christ. As an entire tribe came to know Christ. And some of the very men who, and because they were uh, true barbarians, uh, some of the very men who not only murdered but ate some of these precious men serve the same living God. They have that living hope now. It has been gone away because God's mercy has no end. It is forever. Because those men did not fear death, an entire unreached tribe as life. Yes, there are things more valuable than our lives. These physical tents. Because we have a living hope. We have a, a building of God that's eternal in the heavens that we look forward to because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have no fear. And this moves us to worship, to serve, and to be thankful and as we draw near to Thanksgiving, and pretty much these, this series of sermons is going to take us into and probably through Thanksgiving. Uh, well, I already know it will because I already sent the outline. Oh, that we would remember to be thankful because God's mercy is forever. It has no end in every component of what he has done for us. Let's stop using the broad terms. They're okay. They have their place. But let's use the specific terms about God's mercy toward us. And that's what Peter wants to take us through. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures endures forever. We are coming into Thanksgiving season and I can't think of a better set of passage, set of verses of sermons to direct us than to remind ourselves of the abundant mercy of God that we are to give thanks to him over and over and over and over again. And as we watch the world scurry around afraid of death, we can stand and smile and rejoice and say there are so many things more valuable than my health and life in this tent because God's mercy has no end. Let's pray.